Good evening. This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with Ministries of Malice Against Missions. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. There seems to be a lot of malice against missions today. Why do you think that is, Dr. Hammond? Well, all of us at one time or another have been guilty of gossip, but it is sin. God takes gossip very seriously. The ninth commandment is there for a very good reason. The Bible says, whoever spreads slander is a fool, Proverbs 10.18. We are commanded, brothers, do not slander one another, James 4.11. Pastors are to remind people not to slander one another, to be peaceable, to be considerate, to show true humility towards all men, Titus 3. To spread stories that put somebody else in a bad light is the very opposite of being peaceable and considerate. It's also the very opposite of humility. What do you think is behind this hostility and animosity against Christian missions? Pride often is the engine which drives the gossip industry. It's a desire to portray people who are better than us or more accomplished or successful than us in a bad light, to lift ourselves up by pulling other people down. 1 Peter 2 1 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So, here in 1 Peter 2, we see slander is inextricably linked to malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. And the Bible warns us of those who get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things that they ought not to. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.13. And we hear that some of you are idle. They're not busy, they're busybodies. 2 Thessalonians 3.11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. What kind of people engage in these malicious campaigns against missions? It's noteworthy that most of those engaged in a ministry of criticism have an abundance of spare time. Those who wholeheartedly engage in the work of the Great Commission and who are diligent in raising their children to fear the Lord and have productive employment would not have the time for such busybody, tail-bearing type of activities. Now, numerous of those who have been commissioned by themselves as professional busybodies for the ministry of criticism and... Uh, gift of discouragement, are actually retired people with government or military pensions or in a short income of some sort or another because they may be single people who have never been married. They certainly do not have priority to family responsibilities or raising children because parents would not have the time it takes to be a self-appointed investigator, prosecutor, judge, jury, execution of the targeted minister or missionary. And 1 Timothy 6 verse 4 says, he is conceited. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and arguments that may result in envy, quarrelling, malicious talk, evil suspicions. We need to be willing to be involved in controversies if it will advance the gospel in the kingdom, but controversies and arguments for the sake of envy and quarrelling and malicious talk and evil suspicions, well, there you can see the fruit is bad. In 1 Peter 4.15 it says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or as a meddler or busybody. Now, it's very significant that the Bible puts meddlers in the same category as murderers and thieves. In fact, that's exactly what any obsessive or antagonist becomes. They steal from other people's time. They undermine support base of missionaries and ministries. They deprive missions of the resources they need to do the Lord's work. They actually even endanger people's lives, not only undermining the health of the targets of their obsession and the health of his family, who also suffer, of course, but they even endanger their lives. The law of the Lord is clear. Leviticus 19.16 Do not go about spreading slander amongst your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. 
So slander can actually endanger people's lives, and God's word, of course, forbids it. In your personal experience, have you come across uh, malice and hostility? Sadly, yes. Uh, we've seen this in our own ministry. So for over 40 years, I've been involved in ministering to persecuted churches, working in restricted access areas in communist and Muslim countries, frequently even war zones. I've been involved in eight war zones in the course of my missionary work. And the dangers in this kind of missionary work can't easily be exaggerated. In the course of my missionary work in Africa, I've come under fire and artillery fire, aerial bombardment, rocket attack, been arrested and imprisoned. Um, for example, in 1989, shortly after being captured, shortly after being married, I was captured by communist troops in Mozambique and transported by Soviet MI-8 HIP helicopters. And at that crisis time, several South African and Zimbabwean journalists published reports which greatly aggravated the danger. The danger was bad enough already, but suddenly you had headlines like this. Baptist minister, most important, Renamo Becker. Renamo being the resistance, National Mozambique, the anti-communist resistance movement in Mozambique. And headlines screamed, Peter Hammond, Cape Town-based Baptist minister captured by Philema last year is the most important foreign Renamo sponsor to be captured by Mozambique troops. The article went on to relate that I was the author of the eyewitness testimonies of persecution and atrocities which exposed Philemo's campaign of church burning and massacres in Tet and Zambezi province. And the sensational headlines declared, Renamo's sponsoring clergyman captured. Baptist minister is Philemo's top captive. Missionaries linked to Renamo. The curious missionaries with combat experience. Evangelists of the right preach a gospel of their own. And one headline even described us as mercenary priests. Not that Protestants call their ministers priests, so that was a bit uh, inappropriate. When I was being interrogated by SNAS security police in the notorious Mashava security prison Maputo, numerous irresponsible articles, most of them originating from this Harari journalist, spread speculation and slander which further jeopardized our lives. And I received a letter from the Philemo Ministry of Justice, Department of Religious Affairs, on government letter it signed which warned me, if you ever attempt to come back to Mozambique again, we will kill you. And that was signed on official government letter. The reason for this extraordinary threat was clearly stated. It was because of my writing and publishing of the Mozambique report, the eyewitness testimonies of persecution and atrocities, which we later republished as In the Killing Fields of Mozambique. The media reports, while I was incarcerated in Mozambique, eagerly reported I was the author of these accounts. And interestingly enough, those same journalists who espouse freedom of speech and decry censorship, they were quick to point out that my writings were illegal in Mozambique and openly celebrated my capture, so so much for freedom of the press. When I was captured in um, Zambia and held in Lusaka Central Prison, 1987, South Africans, I was in contact with, um, well, um, South Africa was actually in con conflict with the socialist government of Kenneth Kaunda, the dictator for life uh, in Zambia. And there were landmines and car bombs killing people in South Africa at the time, which were coming through Lusaka. And South African military units were conducting raids on terrorist bases in Zambia. And tensions were high. There were assassinations and bombings taking place both ways around. Nevertheless, when I was arrested along with three other frontline missionaries and we were imprisoned, there were still those who went out of the way to ensure that the Zimbabwe or the Zambian Republic Police, ZRP, Special Branch Security Police, had copies of various articles I'd written against communism and against communist regimes, as well as my connections with Renama and UNITA anti-communist resistance movements in neighboring Mozambique and Angola. In addition, they 
gave information about my military connections with the South African Defence Force, and I was stripped and thrown into a stinking cell covered in human filth with a multitude of flying, crawling, biting insects, deprived of water throughout the night, and then after sleepless nights in the vile sewer of a cell, I was dragged before the interrogators only to see a variety of my writings on the table before me. And uh, I didn't travel with any of our literature that we wrote at those days. That would have been too dangerous. But somebody had sent them, and now they were able to quote um, my opinions about this, that, and the other. And then I was being interrogated. What do you think about Bishop Tutu? What do you think about Nelson Mandela? What do you think about Kenneth Gonda? And I asked, am I here because of something I've done against the laws of Zambia or because of something I've written or said? And next thing, I've got a rifle butt in the back of the head and, um, you know, shut up and answer the question sort of thing, which is contradiction. Do I shut up or do I answer the question? And when I point that out, I've got more thuds. So obviously it doesn't help to be very smart there. But the dangers of ministering behind the lines in the officially Islamic Sudan was even more intense. And a United Nations security official warned me there are helicopter gunships stationed in Juba. If you attempt to take off with Bibles and aircraft, we will blow you out of the sky, quote unquote. And much of the areas we operate in were no-go areas. With a shoot-on-site policy, you fly, you die. That was the operation. The Nuba Mountains at the time was a no-go, no-fly zone. One of our teams on arriving in Nuba Mountains was strafed by MI-24 hind helicopter gunships, which are like flying tanks. And at one service, church service, my sermon was interrupted by artillery bombardment. Another occasion, on a Sunday morning in church, we were bombarded by the Sudan Air Force. And the community, which included the Frontline Fellowship Mission Base and School in Mundry, was repeatedly subjected to aerial bombardment by high-flying Antonovs and even by low-flying MiG-23s. So the Sudan government's hostility for Christian missionaries in general, and of myself in particular, was highlighted on the official government of Sudan Ministry of Foreign Affairs website when they posted an article, Why Churches in Sudan Are Not Bombed. And it ominously stated in this article, Peter Hammond should expect to be bombed whenever he comes to Sudan. He should expect to be shot on sight. An article gave a reason why I should expect this kind of special treatment, because his writings make him an enemy of the government of Sudan, an enemy of the state. Faith on the Fine Sudan book and so on. Now, nevertheless, there have been several Christians who threatened to pass on information that would endanger our work there. Some have actually done just that. When Bishop Bullenduli and I were detained in Yeh, Back in 2002, we were informed that an ex-frontline fellowship missionary, so-called missionary in inverted commas, was behind many of the accusations, and several people, including soldiers, warned the bishop and I not to go to Ye. They were convinced that our lives would be in jeopardy there. You have many enemies in Ye. There are people there who would like to kill you, we were told, by different people in different ways. And the interrogators in Ye informed us they'd been told that Bishop Bullen and I were in touch with the Khartoum government, that's the National Islamic Front government of Omar al-Bashir, the dictator, that we were arming the moral people to revolt against the Dinka leadership of the SPLA, to separate Moraland from the rest of the liberated New Sudan, and to invite the Arabs back into Moraland to cause a split in the SPLA. Well, my devotions that um, during that week of interrogation was much in Psalms, and the Psalms spoke to us. Psalm 41 says, He speaks falsely, while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad, and all my enemies whisper against me, they imagine the worst. There were all kinds of fears expressed about our safety. The security at the compound, the church compound we were staying, was increased. And there were tribal tensions between the Dinka cattlemen and the Moro farmers. And this was exacerbated by the incessant accusations of some of these foreigners who were meant to be our friends. These accusations are coming from your people, I was told. What do you mean my people, asked? 
It's coming from white people. Well, I said, not all white people are the same. They certainly cannot be called my people if they are so against missionaries. But these are your brothers, they told me. These are people who call themselves Christians, even missionaries. They used to work for you. And every day, more details of incredible accusations and intricate plots were revealed. And for anyone to believe that I might be on the side of the radical Islamic jihadists to fight against the Christians, you know, hasn't read any of my books or seen the radio programs and TV programs being involved in. And uh, one worker who I dismissed was one of the main people making these accusations. As Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shed my bread, he has lifted his heel up against me. Some of the church people connected with us were severely interrogated. When we say interrogated, in the case of Joseph and Dominique, they were whipped over 75 lashes each uh, to try and get them to say things against us. But even when our interrogators concluded we were innocent of all charges, they informed us we were free to go. They still warned us there were serious threats to assassinate the bishop and I. They were concerned that a petrol bomb or grenade would be thrown over the fence of our huts that very night and that we would be shot down as we attempted to flee the burning tukuls. For I hear the slander of many. They conspire against me. They plot to take my life. Psalm 31. We were informed, your accusers are tireless. It seems that the main purpose in life is to discredit you and the bishop. Every day there are new accusations. This man that you dismissed from your mission, he has been in the public security office even this morning, handing over more papers with accusations and information that they can use against you. Some of the investigators are most concerned that should you be released, the threat to your life would increase. There are those Dinka commanders who have been influenced by your accusers to such an extent that they would kill you out of hand. As the scripture says, if a foe was rising himself against me, but it is you, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. Psalm 55. And I asked, surely we could be provided with an escort. There is no escort that would be sufficient to protect you from the kind of people who are determined to have you killed, we were told. This is people from military intelligence telling us. And as I read in the Bible, Psalm 52, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You practice deceit. You love evil, you love falsehood, you grow strong by destroying others. It seems very, um, hard to believe that there are Christians who would involve themselves in malicious gossip or slander, let alone that there are believers involved in missions who would deliberately endanger the lives of fellow Christians. It does seem incredible. Yet, the Bible warns us, Jeremiah 9 verse 4, Beware of your friends, do not trust your brothers, for every brother is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. So you may, like myself, wonder, how could this be possible? How could a Bible-believing, born-again Christian engage in such a malicious campaign as to place the lives of fellow Christians in such danger? Now, I've been a Christian for over 46 years, and I first entered full-time missionary work over 42 years ago. So for the last 40 years, I've been a mission leader responsible for the selection, training, and supervision of missionary volunteers, and for relationships with leaders of other missions. And in that time, any misconceptions that I might have had about the basic goodness of man, if not in the world, at least in missions— has been shattered. Instead, I've seen enough examples, even in missions, to support the Reformation doctrine of the total depravity of man. What kind of examples have you witnessed of this kind of maliciousness during your uh, 40 years' experience in missions? Well, I've seen several mission volunteers misappropriate mission property, even taking mission vehicles when they left, as in stealing, taking vehicles that they didn't have the right to own. We have had volunteers not only hijack vehicles, but even hijacking ministries and accounts. Others have misused mission computers to access internet pornography. Some have withheld mission funds and prevented designated support from reaching those intended. 
And when I've been compelled to confront and deal with some of these outrages, it has not been uncommon to have the person concerned lie and deny or even to explode with foul language and assault. One individual even cursed and swore, physically attacking me, declaring for the entire mission house to hear that he intended to kill me. Although he didn't quite use those words only. And, uh, you know, used the word murder and lots of swear words as well. Um, some have left quietly and then taken up the role of a pathological antagonist, working like termites to undermine the support base and poison the relationships of the mission. One such individual who was dismissed for disgraceful conduct actually published in a newsletter where he claimed that after much prayer and seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit, he decided to leave our mission. I mean, leading the Holy Spirit, well, he had been kicked out. He had been fired for disgraceful, shocking behavior. Proverbs 25 verse 18 says, Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is the man who gives false testimony against his neighbor. Presumably there are also other ethical issues that do not involve malice, but do involve pride, deceit, and greed. Indeed. In dealing with guests from other ministries, we've sometimes been horrified by dishonest and unethical practices and claims. Some have merely participated in one field trip with our mission, have gone back to make incredibly extravagant campaigns and claims in their fundraising letters. One man launched an entire ministry with an impressive marketing campaign based entirely upon false claims and plagiarism. Pretending responsibility for the Frontline Fellowship shipments and ministry activities, this one individual, who was merely a junior member of a large team with no significant ministry role, later claimed to have been the leader of the entire operation, quoting all the statistics of the Bible's delivered, ministry conducted, flights chartered, all as his own. Another individual who came in on one Frontline Fellowship mission to Sinan, participated for the first few days of one of our teacher training courses, left early, and later claimed to have set up a couple of dozen schools in our area, and was requesting funds for his staff there. Needless to say, none of the teachers or past in the area were aware of any such activity from him. And another very embarrassing situation arose when a friend in another ministry, which we had invited to participate in an upcoming conference in Zambia, widely circulated claims that they'd been invited by the president of Zambia, and that the entire Zambian cabinet and parliament would be attending our conference, at which the president and vice president were also going to be speaking. Now, as we were the ones organizing this conference, I was deluged with inquiries from mutual friends and supporters wanting to know more. Naturally, one person made a very astute observation. If the Zambian government invited the ministry to conduct this conference, then why are they needing to raise funds for the venue, the advertising, etc.? Indeed, why was Frontline Fellowship having to organize a conference venue, accommodation, catering, advertising, even a program? If this was a government event, all we'd have to do was turn up. On other occasions, I've been approached by ministries to engage in activities which we consider unethical. One asked me to set up an orphanage. I said, we're a leadership training and literature mission. Orphanages are high-maintenance operations. It's not our calling nor our focus. And he said, I'll give you $10,000. And I replied, it'll cost a lot more than that to run an orphanage. And he said, oh, you don't actually have to run an orphanage. Just give me a picture of a crowd of children outside some building with our name on a board. And when I said, are you joking? He wasn't joking. He was dead serious. And um, unfortunately, that sort of thing is not that uncommon. I've come across other people in other ministries who've also been approached to do unethical things like that by groups from overseas. So that brings up the issue of um, unwise or ethical fundraising campaigns and field projects. What have you observed um, in that regard, Dr. Hammond? Well, at one time, redeeming slaves in Sudan was very popular. A number of friends and colleagues of mine were involved in the slave redemption program. I don't want to question their sincere and good motives. It's good to set captives free. 
However, my position was that I could not, in good conscience, be involved in placing money into the hands of an Arab slave trader or facilitator. I'm convinced it is unethical and counterproductive to engage in such commerce. To give a slave trader or the intermediary money is to provide them with the very reward they desire. So well-meaning Westerners eager to redeem slaves with money provide further impetus for slave traders to capture more slaves. Because of the laws of supply and demand, if there's an increase in demand, there will also be a increase in supply. There's no doubt that there's been widespread slavery in Sudan. And this has been done not only with the knowledge of the National Islamic Front government of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir's dictatorship, but it's in fact been encouraged by them. Slavery in Sudan has been used as a weapon of terror to destabilize the South and as an economic incentive to induce Arab soldiers to go south to wage jihad against the infidel um, in the south. And Muslim soldiers and militia have enriched themselves with loot and with slaves. So the question we need to ask is whether with all the many tens of thousands of slaves have been redeemed, purchased, set free, is there a net decrease in the number of slaves in Sudan? And sadly not. Are all Arab masters now doing their own work in the fields? No. Are the Arab madams doing their own work in the kitchens now? No. Are the slave harems now empty? Not at all. Are slave redeemers actually improving the situation or are they merely placing a large amount of currency in the hands of enemies of the gospel? And most of the slave redeemers, some of whom I know personally, do not speak either Arabic or Dinka and have been wholly dependent on a single interpreter in the country. Most have flown in for the day and don't even spend the night on site. So knowing human nature and the inevitable temptations to corruption, it's a strong possibility that many of the well-meaning redeemers are actually being deceived. Numerous reports were received of people being redeemed who had not been slaves in the first place, but part of a deception to separate well-meaning foreigners from their money. I mean, when you go to Disney World, you don't actually meet real pirates of the Caribbean. These are people who, this is their day job, they pretend to be pirates of the Caribbean, and so on, and so forth. And, you know, they get paid well for it, I presume. So, William Wilberforce fought the slave trade for all of his life, and he did so successfully, and he did it without putting money in the hands of slave traders. And David Livingston and General Charles Gordon, they fought the slave traders in Africa without in any way rewarding slave traders. And, um, you know, I point out to people, slaves that you set free today could be recaptured by other slave traders or even the same slave trader tomorrow. How do you know? And uh, um, I said to them, if you want to set slaves free, you give me the money and let me put it in the hands of mercenaries who will shoot the slave traders, then, you know, pay them in lead. Then we can guarantee the slaves will be set free and not re Slaved, at least not by that man again. You know, I said that's a more ethical way of dealing with slave redemption, but it's not acceptable to put money in the hands of slave traders. Well, this was a very unpopular position for frontline fellowship to take. We lost a significant amount of financial support over our unwillingness to engage in a slave redemption program. And several ministries actually used our photographs, our video footage, and our stories and statistics in their fundraising campaigns to support the slave redemption program because we did document the reality of slavery. And friends like Baroness Caroline Cox actually took journalists to the slave market and gave them money and said, go and buy those slaves. And these American journalists came and they, they bought the slaves. Of course, they set them free later, but the point was Baroness Cox was trying to prove to them, you see this slavery can literally buy human beings in a marketplace in Sudan. And this was important initially to prove the point and to get the journalists convinced and to get the news media to expose it. But thereafter, it became pointless because now we knew there was slavery going on there. But all we're now doing is putting a lot of money in the hands of slave trader, which means more people are going to be traumatized by being enslaved. And so it was very unpopular for us to take the stand. But I believe that as Christians, we've got to be wise. And those on the ground 
should know whether this is a good idea or not. And the local churches said to us, it's not a good idea to be putting money in the hands of slave traders and the intermediaries. And they supported our principal stand. So the Episcopal churches then agreed with our position. But this didn't stop lots of churches overseas pouring money into, and we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, pounds, Deutschmark, euros later. And uh, I don't know that it improved the situation on the ground at all at the end of the day. You spent many years um, involved in missions to Sudan. What was your experience there? Well, when I first started working in Sudan and writing and speaking about the persecution of Christians in South Sudan and the Nuba Mountains, there were very few Christian ministries involved there. In fact, the head of Sudan Interior Mission said to me, it is impossible to work in Sudan. I said, how is it possible that it's impossible? He said, with a human being you can reason, but you cannot reason with a Sudanese. And uh, literally there was the head of a mission with Sudan in its title in neighboring Nairobi and Kenya and not willing to work there and trying to discourage me from going. Most Christians were not even aware that the largest country in Africa was involved in the longest war still raging in the 20th century. And there was the oldest community of Christians in Africa suffering some of the worst persecution in the world today. Well, through hundreds of radio and TV programs and scores of articles and publications like Faith Under Fire and Sudan book, the news blackout on the colossal conflict stand started to be lifted. And as we exposed and publicized the scorched earth tactics and the systematic terror bombings of civilian targets, and as we researched the slave trade in Sudan, numerous ministries began to get interested in this neglected field. And some lifted whole articles and photographs from our mission and presented them to their supporters as their own. One individual launched an entire ministry based on a video documentary on Sudan, which we had helped a Christian film ministry to produce. On his website, he claimed to have led the mission trip in which he is just a guest with no specific responsibilities. And even the tons of Bibles which we had organized for almost a year, it takes a lot of time to get Bibles organized, the translations, the printing, the binding, shipping, and then transporting it across the border and distributing it in the country. But he claimed uh, that all this was provided by his ministry, and his ministry hadn't even been in existence at that stage. And even more seriously uh, than the false claims and the plagiarism on his website, he somehow obtained deceitfully a copy of the broadcast master video. He went to help the folks who we had helped produce the film and he said to help them with the editing, to identify things. And while there, he illegally acquired a copy, a duplicate broadcast master. Um, and uh, this was before we had checked it. And he began to circulate and sell a version of the video which included numerous factual errors, biblical errors too, and serious security breaches. Now, when I agreed to take the film producer into Sudan, it was on the basis of a written agreement that I would have the opportunity to correct any factual errors or any security breaches that could endanger our mission or the local people before the film was released. Well, in the wake of the premature release of this uncorrected version, this pirated copy, every location of our mission activity in South Sudan identified in the film was repeatedly bombed. Mundi, Louis, um, Kotobi, uh, Jumba, all of them. This included the hospital, the cathedral, the school, the mission base, and the chaplain's training center. In fact, I was leading an ex evangelism explosion training team at just one of those locations when we were bombed on a Sunday morning at the church. The community, which included the Frontline Fellowship mission base, the high school we were starting, the chapel, was bombed 10 times. The Samaritan's Purse Hospital and Cathedral at Loy were also bombed 10 times. Yet repeated attempts to persuade the individual to delete the security breaches in his version for the videos were unsuccessful. Instead, he started to threaten legal action against both the film producer and ourselves for using what he now considered his video. 
And it, it was outrageous. When I told him about you know, getting a security breach, I said, well, the, the name's already out. They're already bombing them. What difference is going to be if I take it out of future editions? You know, that was the kind of mentality. Well, Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's as good or bad. Another man whom we support for many years, introducing and promoting him to many of our key supporters, he adopted many of the grievances of several of our individuals mentioned, so these pathological antagonists, and started to circulate these slanders to many of our supporting churches, several of whom we had introduced him to. And Proverbs 17, 15 says, Acquitting the guilty, condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And much of this falls into the category of Christian-friendly fire. It's a strange term, friendly fire, shooting your own side. My father um, mentioned friendly fire in North African desert. He was in the 8th Army, and he said, when they heard an aircraft and they'd look up, and if it was Italian, they wouldn't bother diving for cover because they considered them to be uh, inaccurate and incompetent. If they saw the German Luftwaffe, well, they'd dive for cover. He said, if you saw the American Air Force, then you really died for cover. He said, because the American Air Force, they called him the American Luftwaffe, he said, the Americans bombed everyone. He said, uh, the U.S. specialized in friendly fire. He said, we got more bombing sometimes than we, from the Americans than we even did from the Germans, who are meant to be our enemies. And so friendly fire isn't very friendly if you're on the receiving end, though. And uh, so shooting your own side, you do expect to be shot at by the enemy. What you don't expect is to be shot at by your own side, let alone by your own generals. Well, in the American war between the states, at the Battle of Chancellorville, the brilliantly successful Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson was shot by his own side. And when Thomas Jackson died as a result of these wounds inflicted by friendly fire, the cause of the Confederates was actually doomed. Many military historians are of the opinion that had Stonewall Jackson been alive at the crucial Battle of Gettysburg, the Confederates would have won that crucial battle and would have won the war. Up to that time, the Army of Virginia had won every battle. However, at Gettysburg, Lee's generals failed to secure the high ground. On the first day, uh, Lee said to his generals, secure the high ground. And if Jackson had been there, he would have fulfilled Lee's orders. Lee and Jackson were an unbeatable team. But that night, the Union forces moved and began to entrench themselves on the high ground. And even at that point, Stonewall Jackson would have just moved to outflank them or retired to choose to fight on ground more favorable to them. But his successors, however, went into the very same kind of trap that Lee and Jackson had set for the Union force at Fredericksburg. And the devastating result of Pickett's charge, which was very courageous but futile, cost the South the war. So the consequence of friendly fire to this day continued to be devastating to the cause of the Great Commission, just as the Confederates lost the war between the states because of friendly fire that shot their own general. Um, I think in many times in the Great Commission and in world missions, we see friendly fire, attacks by fellow Christians, sabotaging the fulfillment of the Great Commission. May we never be guilty of friendly fire. May God protect his servants from false brethren and pathological antagonists. Where can listeners who want to learn more about malice against missions um, and how to respond for it, where can they find out about uh, find out more? Well, I was led to produce the book Character Assassins, Dealing with Ecclesiastical Tyrants and Terrorists, which is published by Christian Liberty Books and available on the christianlibertybooks.co.za website. Character Assassins is also available as a print-on-demand as an e-book. Character Assassins actually has eight different authors contributing. I've brought together a compendium of some tremendous authorities on this. It's a 300-page book. I wrote about a third of it. People like my father-in-law, Bill Bathman, contributed and... Uh, uh, Joel Beakey, uh, we had some outstanding re contributions. Brian Epstein contributed and others. And uh, 
So character assassins deals with biblically, historically, practically, missionary-wise, and legally about the phenomenon of pathological antagonists and uh, clergy killers and those people who seem to target those who are blessed or used or affected by God. And it's an amazing thing. It's happened in the scriptures. It's happened throughout history. And, you know, even Jesus had his Judas. So false brethren have been around for a long time. And it's a phenomenon that's increasing these days because, as uh, Mark Twain said, truth, um, a lie can go around the world, halfway around the world, before truth gets its boots on. Well, that's just before the internet. Mm -hmm. Now a lie can go 10 times around the world before truth's got its boots on. And so it's never been easier to be a pathological antagonist and to um, attack people, target people, and to spread slander, gossip, and unfavorable uh, opinions about people. It's, it's insidious, and it's very common. And I have had many people like Dr. James Kendi um, appreciate this book. Uh, Ken Ham was very excited on St. Genesis when he saw Caractasins ordered a whole box of it uh, because he said uh, this is the best book he'd seen on the subject, and he had gone through it and so many other people he knew being targeted. And so I've had people from around the world write and say, Thank you so much. I thought I was the only person in the world this was happening to. I had no idea it happened so much in the Bible and history. So many other missionaries, William Carey, David Livingston, all suffered character assassins like this. And so it's important for us to know about the danger so we can be more skeptical of people who are involved in attacking uh, those who are involved in the fine ministry. Uh, recently, we had the book uh, on Journey to the Truth written by Gerda Potkita on the targeting of Quasimanta mission, which has got to be the most blessed and effective mission in Africa, and the slander of Erla Stegen, who's one of the finest and most blessed ministry in the history of South Africa, not since Andrew Murray, if we had anyone of that quality. And I think James Kennedy put it so well where he said, the more effective you are, the more prominent you are, the more blessed you are, the more you'll be targeted. And the only defense against a reproach is obscurity. The more prominent or the more blessed or the more effective you are, the more you'll be attacked. I mean, just think of those who are targeted for these kinds of attacks are always the most effective for the most blessed or successful. And just the incredible attacks on Donald Trump, for example, uh, although he's not being attacked for being a Christian, but he's a successful businessman and more importantly, a very successful president and candidate. That kind of pathological antagonism that you see from so many in the media and around the world, um, it's something that you can see exactly what was warned about in the scriptures and what we've been giving some of the verses from Psalms. So if a person wants to learn more about this, obtain the book Character Assassins, um, which you can obtain from ChristianLibertyBooks.co.today, and it's also available as print on demand or ebook if you find the logistics of getting it from Cape Town difficult. Yeah, and um, um, modern uh, electronic media seems to be a double-edged sword. It assists you to spread uh, the, the truth, but at the same time it uh, can be used as a, an effective weapon against you. Yes, so, I mean, we can share... A podcast like this with other people who've been concerned or um, share the book or get hold of the book and find some of the articles on uh, character assassins and we've got some audios and videos um, where we've dealt with when all men speak well of you and uh, coping with criticism and so on and coping with conflict. These are some PowerPoints and videos that are available on our website and you can help encourage people. There are a lot of hurt ministers out there and we need to provide hope and healing for the hurting ministers who've been targeted. There's a lot of malice and there's a lot of ministries involved in malice against missions. So we need to identify the problem and then bolster ourselves to be able to counteract it.
Mm. What would you say is uh, what what can uh, someone under such a tech do to keep their spirits up and their optimism up? Well, first of all, pray the Psalms. The Psalms are full of um, prayers from people who've suffered all kinds of attacks. So that's important. The middle book of the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible, the most quoted book in the Bible, Jesus quoted more from the Psalms than any other source. And uh, we need to be people who pray the Psalms, that's for sure. But learning from history how other people, whether it's Charles Spurgeon or Andrew Murray, whether it's David Livingston, um, Mary Slessor, all other missionaries have suffered these kind of attacks. And a pathological antagonist might be uh, increasing in these days, but it's not unique. This has happened throughout history. And so whether you get hold of Character Assassin's book or the um, Journey to the Truth by uh, Gerda Potkita, who exposes the News 24 campaign against the uh, Quest of Intermission, these would encourage one to see what has happened before and how people have handled it before. And this would give us the encouragement to know I'm not alone, I'm not uh, in a unique situation here. This has happened before. And people also even accuse Jesus of being um, a drunkard and a tax collector and uh, a, a drunkard and a sinner and demon-possessed and accuse Jesus of... Um, teaching uh, to uh, rebel against the Romans and things that uh, was not true. So if they did this to the Lord, as the Lord said, the servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me, they'll hate you too. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Hammond, for your uh, fascinating insights into this uh, dark side of um, missions and uh, the dark side of human nature. Um, yeah, in closing, we'd like to read from James chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night.